Good evening to all of you. It's wonderful to be with you this evening, and it's great to see some familiar faces, and it's wonderful to be able to worship our Savior together this evening. So I'm sorry that my wife, Linda, isn't with us this evening. She is in Poland uh, helping to care for our oldest daughter, married to Matt Gingerich, and they're expecting their second child, and she was ordered by the doctor to uh, take it easy. So uh, my wife is there helping take care of uh, the house. And so I know she'd like to be here this evening. Well, Brother John asked if I would talk about some of the experiences in the past that my wife and I and family were privileged to go through and to talk a little bit about uh, the present status of Lisa and Isabella. And so I want to endeavor to do that by the grace of God. So once there was a, uh, a man uh, in his middle, middle-aged man, he was, he was sitting by a fence. And this was a prison fence, an interior fence with razor wire over his head. And he's sitting there with his back against this chain link fence. And he's thinking back over his life and some dreams that he'd had. And he realized that his dream, a good dream, had died. And he realized that sometimes God resurrects our dreams, but he realized that this dream was not going to come back to life. And it was an overwhelmingly sorrowful moment for him. And you know, those of us who've lived long enough can, can relate to the death of a dream there may be some young folks here this evening that still have your dreams and they lie out ahead of you and you've not yet experienced what it's like to possess a dream and then realize that this dream has been taken away from you. But those are some of the hardest experiences that we go through. Sometimes we, we have something deep inside that we really want to do and we feel this is something that God has led us toward and and people have blessed the dream, and the lights are all green, and we feel inspired and convicted that this is the course of action we should take, and the church is behind it, and we go forward, and then everything sort of falls apart, and we realize that we have a dream that is not going to turn out as we had hoped, and we have to die to the dream. And this could be a, a, a financial situation, could be a relationship that we would like to have and have wanted to pursue, could be a ministry opportunity that has failed spectacularly and everything is, is, is now kind of collapsed and it didn't turn out like we had wished. And those can be some of the most soul-crushing experiences that we go through. And this is how this man felt that day by the fence. And we know that sometimes God does bring dreams back to life, but sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes we have to live with the pain of the loss of a dream. And my wife and I had this dream. We dreamed of moving with our family to the country of Ireland. We were given this opportunity uh, under Mission Interest Committee and uh, our church released us and sent us to Ireland in the summer of 2010. And 
This was the fulfillment of a, of a dream in that there's a business visa or business visas, five of them that have been set up in Ireland now for a number of years and families can move over there and come under uh, those visas. And we had intentions of finishing raising our family in Ireland. And of course, Ireland has a unique uh, setting in the European Union in that Ireland also is in partnership with the United States and you can have dual citizenship. You can be a US citizen and an Irish citizen at the same time. And this makes Ireland a gateway into the EU community. So if you're an Irish citizen, you can live in Ireland and then um, you can live and work anywhere in any of the 27 EU countries. And we had this dream of raising our family over there, finishing raising our family, and hoping that some of them would stay over there and maybe help um, establish churches here and there in the continent of Europe under one of those 27 European Union countries. And now on that day, with my back to the fence, I realized that is probably not going to happen. And we had to come back. And I'm sure that some of you can relate to the death of a dream. What's that like? What that's like to have a dream that you've cherished crushed inside of you. But I'm here to remind us all that there is something that is better than a fulfilled dream or a resurrected dream. And our Savior came to Martha on the darkest of days. Her brother had died. Jesus was late. Martha met him. We know the story. She said, why haven't you come? He's dead already. And he, his response was, essentially, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he said, he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And we're here to remind us this evening that to have the Savior, the, the resurrected life of the Savior in us is better than any of our dreams. And when everything is dark and when the dream is dead and it doesn't seem as though it will come back to life, your spirit feels crushed, there is something that God gives us and he gives us his resurrected son. So now instead of living in Ireland, here we were, here I was, inside that double razor wire. We didn't seem our dream fulfilled, but we experienced something better. And so my family and I went through this experience and I was separated from my wife and family for two years. And it was easily the most difficult experience of my life. But it was also truly the most joyful time of my entire life. And I know it was because of God's spirit. And I know it was because of the prayers of, of the saints here and there, many places supporting us. And I wanna thank you all for the prayers that I know you all prayed during this time of trial for us. Uh, we felt those prayers and I felt them there that day as the comforting presence of the spirit came and reminded, reminded me that everything will be okay. Sometimes I look back at some of the pictures that were taken 
uh, inside the visitor's room, we would, I would be able, I was able to have visitors at Petersburg Glow while I was being held for those two years. And uh, sometimes I would remember to uh, take my picture ticket along. And so partway through the visit, you could take a picture with your visitor, inmate photographer. And I look back at some of those pictures that were sent out of the prison. Who is this fellow? He is so radiantly happy looking. And it's me. And I look in the mirror today and I sometimes wonder, well, what happened to that? But in those times of trial, there, there was a deep joy that I don't think I had before or since. I would like to have more of that back. So we want to just praise God for the work that he's done. By the fence that day, I realized that I would have to probably live with an unfulfilled dream. But, and we're still living with, with kind of the pain of that. Something else that happened by that fence uh, sometime later. So that was a fence that the Sundays were probably about the, the worst of days because there was Sunday was a long day and uh, we weren't working that day, of course, in the landscape crew. And so, you know, Sunday morning service might begin at around nine o'clock and be over by 10 o'clock and he had the rest of the day. So sometimes I would sit by that same fence and one day I was out there kind of drowsing and uh, had my book in my lap and uh, my bare feet stretched out in front of me and I heard somebody say, Miller! And I looked up and what do you think I saw? So off to the side here under one of the five trees on the compound was a concrete pad. And on that concrete pad was a picnic table, a metal picnic table. And if you could stand the bird droppings that fell from the tree above, you might sit there and eat your lunch. Well, the roots of the tree had pushed up the, the concrete pad maybe three or four inches. And there was a space under there. And uh, ambling toward me out from underneath that space underneath the concrete pad was a black and white creature. Anybody want to guess what it was? What about you on the front row there? Want to guess what it was? You're right. It was a skunk. And it was coming toward me about 10 feet away, maybe 15 feet away. And it was coming straight toward me. And I had my book on my lap and got stuff on by my side here. What, what was I supposed to do? Uh, you know, if you make some quick moves, if a skunk is coming toward you, what might he do? Well, I didn't want to um, run the risk of disturbing the skunk, so I didn't know what to do, but I just sat there. And you know something? Uh, that skunk, it kept on coming toward me, and I froze, and I was sure hoping I wouldn't disturb him. And he kept right on coming. And he came right up to my bare feet and he put his little moist little nose right up against my bare feet and he sniffed and he sniffed and then he turned tail, but he didn't raise his tail <laughs> and he ambled away. And I won't forget the 
feeling of that skunk's little nose on my bare feet. And sometimes I tell people that, well, looks like I beat the skunk at his own game. <laughs> he walked away. <laughs> so I want to uh, recap for you just briefly the story of Lisa and her daughter. So back in the early 2000s, uh, the, the state of Vermont uh, passed a law that allowed a legal civil union between same-sex couples. There was a couple in Virginia in a same-sex relationship, and they moved to Vermont and entered a civil union in Vermont and lived there. While they lived there, uh, one of the ladies uh, conceived artificially, and a little girl was born in that relationship. And her name was Isabella. And uh, the mother's name was Lisa Miller. And right around the birth of the child, Lisa realized that what she was doing was sinful and that she needed to repent of that situation and come back to the faith of her childhood, which she did. And she removed herself from the relationship. The civil union in Vermont was dissolved. She moved back to Virginia with her daughter, now maybe a year old. And then in about 2004 or thereabouts, uh, Virginia passed the Defense of Marriage Act, which it was a popular referendum, and it meant that the voters in Virginia determined that marriage is between one man and one woman. And part of the um, Defense of Marriage Act in Virginia had to do with uh, parental rights outside of Virginia. And the law essentially said that if you were in a civil union in one of the few states at the time that allowed them, and if you came back to the state of Virginia under the Defense of Marriage Act, then everything, including parental rights in the other states, now in Virginia, was null and void. Well, what had happened in Vermont, as this thing was dissolved, the judge in Vermont, very liberal, liberal state, he gave parental rights to the other woman, Jenkins, whom we've loved and have prayed for much. And he made her a mother also. Now here, this little girl had two mothers, by, by law at least. But of course, this other mother, this other uh, lady, was not connected biologically to the little girl, and she did not adopt either. The legal connection to the little girl was through the ruling of the judge who ruled that because the situation happened while these two women were together in what the Bible would call a very sinful relationship, because of that, the little girl was also a, a child of the former partner. And it's my understanding that in the state of Vermont at the time, uh, if you were a in a regular marriage and let's say your partner died and you remarried and the new partner brought children into the marriage, you would have needed to adopt those children in order to be their parent. So this judge uh, went further than that and awarded parental rights to the former partner who is in Vermont still and now the biological mother, the real mother is in Virginia. And there was a legal battle that started there, of course, Along with parental rights in Vermont, in Vermont came visitation rights, and the little girl needed to go to Vermont to be with this 
other lady whom she didn't really know because she'd been with her real mother the whole time. And so what happened is that the Vermont judge sued Lisa uh, or the court sued her for, and found her in contempt of court for not giving visitation rights. And uh, at first, uh, a court in the Winchester area uh, sided with Lisa and said, Virginia court said, Lisa is the only mother. The other woman is not really the mother. And according to God's law, she, she isn't, even though we love her and, and wish her all the best. So um, there was a legal battle that ensued. Uh, it went all the way to the Virginia Supreme Court, Vermont Supreme Court, and eventually the Vermont courts won and full faith and credit, as they call it, was given to the Vermont courts. And now Lisa, even though she's in Virginia, under Virginia law, she now has to go under the precedent or the, 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 the ruling of the judge actually has precedent over Virginia law. And, it, and, and of course, it became a big political thing. And this was right over the time that the United States was you know, fighting over uh, same-sex marriage and, and same-sex rights and all these things. And the situation in Vermont, the judge, it seemed, wanted to kind of push the envelope on these issues. And it, it was a kind of a, a, a case on the cutting edge at the time. And so uh, Lisa kept, found, kept getting found in contempt by the Vermont judge for not giving custody or giving visitation. And she did initially, but then her daughter came back with some stories and fearing the worst, she put a stop to it. And now in this, this was all taking place from about 2004 up to 2009 for about five years. Finally, uh, in the fall of 2009, the Vermont judge uh, was about to transfer full custody uh, of Isabella over to the Vermont lady, Janet Jenkins. He felt he had no choice because Lisa had not been giving visitation rights and he was finding her in contempt of court multiple times for disobeying his orders. So at that point, I uh, understand that Lisa, our dear sister in Christ, remembered the, the movie Witness. Now, I never watched the movie Witness, uh, probably not many of you have, hopefully, uh, but I understand in that movie, um, there was a woman who wanted to hide among the Amish. And it seemed as though our friend, uh, our dear sister Lisa, who was uh, a believer and uh, in Lynchburg at the time by now, uh, she decided she wanted to hide with her daughter among the Mennonites to avoid having, well, to avoid some things. So actually it was so that uh, transfer of custody wouldn't happen. So she chose to hide among the Mennonites. And out of uh, the blue one day, she appeared. And um, some of us then uh, helped her. And she fled to Nicaragua. At the time, Nicaragua was a logical place for her to flee because there was no extradition treaty with the United States. She fled to Nicaragua, and um, the judge, indeed, after she fled in 
September of 2010. I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. So this happened in 2009. And we had been released by our congregation in May of 2009 to go to Ireland. So now this is September. Lisa Miller came. She was helped. She went to Nicaragua and went in a kind of roundabout way through Canada and down to Nicaragua. And in the meantime, we were making preparations, my wife and family and I, to move to Ireland, our dream. And, and by July of 2010, we had moved to Ireland. And in the meantime, the judge in, I think it was October, I think it was early November, actually, of 2009, like two months after Lisa had fled, he ordered transfer of custody to uh, the other lady in Vermont. And that transfer was supposed to happen January 1st, 2010. Well, of course, that date came and went. She didn't appear because she was already uh, south of here. And finally, the police then put out a warrant for her and started doing uh, investigation. And there was a, a trail left behind, unfortunately, as wide as superhighway. And they soon uh, uh, discovered how she had gotten away. In the meantime, we were now in, in Ireland. And uh, in April of 2011, then, uh, Brother Timo was arrested as he came to the United States. And then we started getting a little nervous and in the fall of 2011, in October, I was in the workshop there in the community at Dunmore, East Ireland. And um, I was putting, uh, working at putting some lawn furniture together. And my wife came to the door of the shop and she had this uh, kind of anxious look on her face and she said, there's a phone call. And I went to the phone and picked up the phone and there was a US Marshal and the FBI agent on the phone and he wanted information which I chose not to give and he said, you'd better get a lawyer. And at that point, uh, we knew uh, there was uh, trouble brewing and eventually we felt it was best to return and face the charges. So we moved our family back to the United States in December of 2011, less than a year and a half after moving to Ireland in pursuit of fulfilling this dream. Well, so that was a huge disappointment, which I then faced that day in 2000, I think it was the summer of 2016, when I realized that we're, we're almost certainly never going back to Ireland to live there. And so <clears throat> what happened then is, of course, uh, attorney by attorney recommendation and by, by, by the attorney's uh, work, uh, we went, I went to Vermont, to self-surrender right there at the federal court. And we expected an arraignment and appearance before the judge. But when I walked into the federal court there, they arrested me and put me in a holding cell for a few hours uh, while I got to think over the situation and released me. And we knew later then that this arrest uh, gave them a basis for uh, putting me on trial in Burlington, Vermont, uh, pretty much right in the heart of the, of the liberal uh, country at that time. So um, the trial happened in 2012, 
and uh, was found guilty of aiding and abetting international parental kidnapping. So backing up just a bit again, after Lisa did not appear with her daughter in January of 2001, arrest warrant was put out and charges were filed against her of international parental kidnapping because she fled with her own daughter. Well, so then those of us who were charged in connection with the case were found guilty of aiding and abetting international parental kidnapping. So now this is in uh, August of 2012 and uh, guilty verdict and uh, we appealed. We thought we had a good shot at winning the appeal because on the, on the basis of ven improper venue and then this case kept on winding down through the appeals court until finally in late 2015, we realized that we'd lost the appeal and I would need to self-surrender at Petersburg, Virginia at the, at the federal prison, low security prison uh, there at Hopewell, which then I did, walked, it, walked up that long walkway. Uh, it was a very lonely walk uh, and uh, self-surrendered there at Petersburg on March 22nd, 2016 and then served uh, two years and was released uh, in uh, March, early March of 2018. So that's the kind of the long and short of my experience. Of course, there's also Brother Timo, who fortunately uh, was able to uh, be released after only seven months. And Philip Zodiades, a local businessman there at Waynesboro, was also found guilty in connection with the case and was sentenced to he served about 30 months altogether. And now Lisa herself, what happened there, uh, she fled, as I said, in, 2000, in the fall of 2009 when her daughter was seven years old. And they went to uh, south of the border and they remained hidden for 11 years, which seems like a miracle. Uh, there are many stories out there of uh, narrow escapes I understand that uh, there was an occasion when the U.S. Marshals, that they had U.S. Marshals uh, down there um, on a number of occasions. And on one occasion, uh, they were headed to her house and she felt that something, something told her to leave. She left uh, and via someone's help, I think, and they would have passed the U.S. Marshals on the road. Another time, there was an occasion where uh, the U.S. Marshals had come, uh, maybe it was Interpol, and they came to her address, but they got it slightly wrong. And they were searching the neighbor's house right next door. And uh, Isabella and her mother were in the house right next to it. And so after they finished searching the one house, the authorities came over to the other house while they exited the back door and came into the house that had just been searched. And there are a number of other stories like that. It seems clear that God had his hand on the situation and helped her escape detection for 11 years. So last year in January, uh, when Isabella is almost 19 years old, they picked a day to reappear at the U.S. Embassy in Managua, Nicaragua. So there was a brother who agreed to come with them to the uh, embassy, a very brave brother, Tim Schrock. And they didn't know what would happen when they reappeared. 
they feared that uh, that other people may also be arrested, and but she needed some help getting there. So Tim Schrock said, I'm not afraid to go to jail. So he went with them, and there was a signal they had arranged for uh, an email uh, to be sent on Brother Pablo Yoder's email list. Uh, as she uh, went up to the embassy, they were going to hit the send button on this email, which was going to go out to Pablo Yoder's probably several thousand email list. And very likely there are some reporters and maybe even some government or some law enforcement people on that email list. Wouldn't surprise me at all. And they were going to get everybody to pray for Lisa and Isabella as they came into the embassy and as Lisa self-surrendered, that everything would go well. It was their desire to come back to the States, face the music, and get it over with. So that's what they did. They, they went up to the embassy and um, this brother that had sent the email suddenly got this phone call. Have you sent the email? They said, yes, I just sent it. Oh, no, because they did it on a Monday. And in the United States, it happened to be Martin Luther King birthday. And, of course, everything is shut down up here and U.S. embassies were closed abroad. The embassy was locked. And now word was out that... Uh, Lisa Miller is, has reappeared, and people were very concerned about that, but they went back, found a motel, went back in the next day, and uh, surrendered again, and the embassy officials didn't know what to do with them. And so they uh, negotiated, they went to a motel for about a week, and finally, uh, at the end of January in 2021, Lisa Miller, uh, on her own, uh, boarded a jet in Managua and came to Miami where she was taken into custody. Later in the year, in June of 2020, her daughter, Isabella, now 19 years old, got on an airplane and came to the United States with some people who were very courageous in bringing her uh, through U.S. immigration. They did not know what was going to happen, but they came through U.S. immigration just fine and uh, brought her here. So since that time, some of you probably don't know, it's been kind of low key, I mean, it's an open secret, that dear Isabella, she is uh, now uh, 20, and is, um, uh, has been a faithful member of a church in Central America, one of our churches, and is now affiliated with, the, uh, with uh, Oak Grove Church in Aroda and has been living over there for now um, almost a year, going on a year. She just finished up uh, two terms at SMBI. So we're very thankful about that. We're very happy. We're, we're proud of her, and she's doing uh, quite well. Of course, has had many, many adjustments, uh, and um, has, has had many, many struggles too, of course, after having been in hiding for so long and facing the stress of that, and now suddenly coming back to a totally different type of society. So mother and daughter are both safe. Now Lisa is still in prison, and she uh, was given sentencing guidelines. The judge agreed to 12 to 18 months. So her sentencing date is uh, June uh, 16th, I think it is. And we expect that the judge might release her on that date. There is a home team in Aroda that is 
going to, by the grace of God, stand by her and care for her and help her reintegrate society as she's kind of been in limbo and dealing with this legal case now for about 20 years and has been either in hiding or incarcerated for 12 or 13 years. So she's now going to need to be making some kind of re-entry back into society, kind of like a refugee. And so if you want, I can, I can give you an address if you want to help out a little bit with uh, funding. She's coming back and she is, uh, wants to get a job and she wants to pay back what people give, but it will take a little bit to get her an apartment, maybe a vehicle, and get her set up. So if you can send um, funds directly to Stephen Yoder. Uh, Stephen Yoder, and his address is uh, 923 Orange Road, uh, Pratts, Virginia, 22731. If you want, I can give you the address afterward. So there's a good plan, by the grace of God, for getting these dear people back together. And now, I wanted to give you a little update, and now I want to talk about the power of the gospel. Brother John. One, one more thing. Is there still any type of civil case in the works? Thank you. There is. There is a lawsuit um, that is uh, against five or six of us. And after Sister Lisa's federal case is finished, the lawsuit will resume. We're not exactly sure where that's going to go. Uh, it's being headed up now by the Southern Law and Poverty Center. So they're a pretty strong-armed organization, and uh, we're not sure yet how that's all going to turn out. But I, I don't spend any time worrying about it. All right, so um, I want to tell you about a man that I met in prison. And some of you have probably heard this story because I know I've told it in a number of places. But it's such a touching story, and it moves me every time. So Brother, Brother John read the, the, the verses from Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, and Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he says further, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And I really like that word righteousness, and I'm sure we've heard definitions of the word righteousness and to sum it up, maybe we could say one definition is an attribute of God. God is righteous. Another definition is a standing before God, like imputed righteousness, uh, because it says of Abraham that he believed in God and it was counted to him for righteousness. His faith was counted to him for righteousness. And Paul makes it very clear there in the book of Romans that if we believe in Jesus, it will be imputed to us also. So there is a, a righteousness that comes, uh, actually, uh, it says there very clearly, before Abraham did any works, he was declared righteous. So there is this standing that we're given by faith in Jesus. And this is so exciting. And I know that Luther basically camped on that definition. And the evangelical world has pretty much now made that the definition of righteousness a proper standing. But another definition that we have really liked is that righteousness is an action that God takes in the lives of his people. And I really like that definition, that righteousness is something that God actually concretely does 
in the lives of people and people's lives are changed because of that. And we believe that. And we've kind of camped on that maybe sometimes almost to the expense of losing the wonderment and the, the glory of the standing that we have. We want both. We want both the imparted righteousness and, and the, the righteous act of God, righteousness as an act of God in us. So I, I met a man in prison by the name of Doug that kind of exemplified this kind of righteousness, a right standing before God as well as a, a work that God had done in him. So when I first met this guy, he was probably one of the most peaceful men that I met in that prison of a thousand men. And I assumed that maybe he had grown up in a good home because he just, he, he seemed so peaceful and gracious. And um, when I first met him, I think it was in the dining hall, in the dining hall there in all these prisons, they're segregated. You have the African-Americans on one side and the white guys on the other side. And then you're further segregated into groups such as the haters, it would be the white supremacists, and you have uh, the, gay, the gays tend to hang together, and then you have the, the child, those guilty of child abuse are uh, together generally in one section, and then you have some religious groups that sit together too, and, and Brother Doug was part of the Messianic Christian community. And I started hanging out with those guys because I found them to be, uh, their lifestyle was more in line with what I believed, and their style of service, even though it was a Sabbath day service, uh, was much calmer and much uh, less, um, whatever, excessive than the other service. Plus, the other service uh, was compromised. Um, you had men, couples, that would come together into that service and even sang on the choir. So I did not feel comfortable there, so I hung out quite a bit with the Messianic Christians. And Doug was one of those. And gradually, uh, he was a little intimidating. He had this big tattoo on the back of his head of a bulldog. And I'm not sure what uh, gang that represented, but it was a vicious gang, and I would not have wanted to meet him in an alleyway after dark. But here in prison, I felt pretty safe with him, and especially as I got to hear his story. And we walked around the track a number of times on a number of occasions, and he began to tell me his story. And I realized he did not grow up in a godly home, rather totally the opposite. Here was, um, he was Irish, and his grandfather was Irish Republican Army, IRA, in the Troubles, during the Troubles, and he was one who perpetrated violence. And one day he was on his way to a British police station, I think it might have been Belfast or one of the other Northern Ireland cities, and he had a bomb in his hand. He was gonna bomb the British police station, and it went off prematurely and blew off part of his hand and arm. That was Doug's grandfather. So he had this legacy of violence and just kind of vileness, uh, drinking alcohol and life without God. They emigrated to the United States. I think his father came when Doug was young and Doug grew up on the wrong side of the tracks in Detroit, got into heroin manufacturing or got into dealing and uh, manufacturing. I'm not sure if he was a user. His wife, he told me, was a functioning heroin addict. She would get her children off to school and then would get high for the rest of the day and somehow get herself back together in time to get supper on and help out the family. 
But Doug eventually got into trouble for that, and he ended up in prison. And when, while he was in prison, he vowed to take revenge on the people who turned him in. When he got out, he tried to act on that uh, desire, and he that's where he got the, the uh, attempted murder charges, and he got into a shootout with police, and he ended up in a federal prison with a 40-year sentence. And he had, by the time he worked his way down through the system uh, to Petersburg Glow, he had been in some, I think he had told me he'd been in a supermax kind of a prison, like this, the top tier of security. And he had been through some very, very hard and brutal times. It's unimaginable, the brutality that takes place in some of those places. Well, but now this was 27 years into his 40-year sentence when I first met him. And now he was this gentle, gracious man, and we started talking about the teachings of the Messiah. And I realized that he had studied the Sermon on the Mount and had come pretty much to the same understanding on many of the things that Jesus taught there in the Sermon on the Mount as I had. And in a lot of ways, he could identify with the Mennonite. He was now a believer in non-resistance, not only on a governmental level, but also on a personal level. Uh, he tried to practice it right there in the prison. He knew he had to, and he, he sought to do that. And so I'm just like amazed by this man's transformation from coming from this violent, and, and he said for the first uh, 10, 15 years he was in prison, I think the first 11 years that he was in prison, no longer than that, up till uh, a few years previous to where I met him, he had been this very angry better man. And in fact, he said, at the time I met him, after 27 years, he had not gotten a single visitor in all that time. That's how bad his reputation was on the outside. He had several children. Even they had rejected him and didn't come to see him. But he was, um, he was a, a happy man. He was a man at peace with himself and with the world. And he had accepted his lot, and he worshipped the Messiah. And then he began to tell me his story. He said, um, some years previous to this, at Petersburg, in the same prison, there was a unit uh, called the Life Connections Unit, where you take like life coaching, and it's faith-based. And he read a book as part of the assignment that he was given. And in that book, there was a story a story of a woman in South Africa. She was an African woman, but she was a believer, and she lived in the ghetto during the time of apartheid, when you know, the white rule was trying to suppress the, the, the blacks because they wanted to stay in power, and there was an awful lot of brutality perpetrated on the black population of South Africa during that time and because the blacks were in the majority and the whites were in a, by far in the minority. So this dear woman had a husband and one day the, and she had a, she had a son. And one day they came for her son and they took him away and she never saw him again. And this happened to many families during that time. Later, I think maybe two or three months, they came for her husband and they took him away. About three weeks later, they came for her. And they took her 
to where her husband was. And they had brutalized him, they had tortured him, and now he was on a pile of wood. And the last thing that she heard him say as they poured the gasoline over him and as they lit the match, she heard him say, Father, forgive them. And then they lit the match and her husband is burned alive in front of her. Later, after apartheid was overthrown and these white perpetrators were brought to justice, there was a system of restorative justice that was put in place where the victims of the crimes were given the right to help determine the sentencing of, the, of these people who had done this. There was a man by the name of Debrock was put on trial. He was the police officer who had been in charge of the division of the military or the police that had taken both her son and her husband. He was responsible for this atrocity. And he was put on the dock that day, or she, he was put on, taken to the court, and this woman was there to help determine his sentence, what should happen to him. The judge, the time came, the court, and the court was filled with people who were, who, who had, who were all pretty much victims of similar atrocities, or the families of the victims. And the judge turned to this woman and talked to her about what had been committed by this man against her family. What do you want for this man? What sort of punishment should this man bear because of his crime against your family? And the woman replied, she was a believer in the Messiah. She said, I want three things. She said, first, I want this man. She said, first, I want to go to the place where they burned my husband so that I can collect the ashes from his body and give him a proper burial. And she said, secondly, I want this man to come to my house in the ghetto twice a month he is the only one that I have in the world. She said, my husband and my son were all that I have. And now, in the days that I have left, I wish to pour the love that remains in me on this man, and I want him to come twice a month to my house where I will prepare him a meal and eat with him. And she said, third, to show that I truly forgive this man. I want him, I want to go to him right now and put my arms around him and show him my forgiveness. And at that point, the man collapsed. He fainted. And the entire court stood and sang, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And here was this man Doug, he told me what happened. He said, as part of an assignment in the Life Connections course, he read that story. And the testimony 
of radical forgiveness that came from that woman from decades back, 8,000 miles away. Her story came to this vile, wicked, hard, bitter, violent man, and it broke through. And the light of the glorious gospel broke through. And he said to me, I knew whatever that woman had, I had to have it. And he began to seek after the Yahweh that he never knew up to now. And he found the Messiah. Yeshua Messiah is the terminology those brothers used. He found him. And he was transformed by that righteousness, by the power of the gospel, the righteousness that comes by faith and that puts us in right standing before God and transforms us. I saw it in Doug. And I praise God for that dear man. He's gone now. He died about a year and a half ago but not before he got a visit for the first time from his daughter. And he told me that his goal was, this isn't exactly a Mennonite thing, but he said he has like 12 more years to serve. And he said, the thing I want to do when I get out of prison is I want to take my, I want to take my daughter and I want to dance with her. <laughs> he never got that done. He died in prison. But I'm so thankful that he found the Messiah. And I believe that God declared him righteous. And that's the story I want to leave with you. Uh, many other things we could talk about, about this experience, but it's so exciting to know that God is at work around the world in this college town that's filled with hedonism over here at, at this place. And I'm thankful that the same God that uh, convinced Paul that the folks at the end of Romans chapter 1 could be transformed by the gospel. I'm so thankful that that same God is alive and is at work in people's lives in this town.